Good morning, my traveling church family. I too have traveled. <laughs> uh, if you would please turn with me to Mark chapter 14. In the book of Proverbs, we find a lot of contrasts. In fact, that's one of the ways that Hebrew does poetry. One of them is to put two statements side by side that are contrasting. See a lot of examples of that in the Proverbs. Uh, For instance, Proverbs chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, we find a contrast in each verse. First one says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. See the contrast? Another one here. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. On the first case, you see a contrast. A soft answer turns away wrath, but uh, a harsh word stirs up anger. Uh, Here in this one, there's a contrast of the speakers and their mouths, the kind of answers they give uh, there. The second one, tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. Uh, There you see the wise and the fool contrasted through speech. Um, Obviously, there's one example that's commended to us and one that's denounced. I think we can pretty easily figure out which one is which there. Uh, And these two, in Hebrew poetry and in the Proverbs here and elsewhere, they, they work together. The better the one is, the worse the other looks. And the worse the one is, the better the other works. They, they kind of work together in that way. Well, in Mark 14 this morning, we're going to find a contrast between two people. The example of the one will commend a certain kind of heart to us, and the other will show us the opposite. Both were real living examples in the life of Jesus as his earthly ministry is drawing to its close. We've just finished the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13, and now this morning we're picking up where we left off, starting in Mark 14, verse 1 and following. I'll read the passage. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning, and we look into your word, and we ask that you would transform us by your word. Lord, your your word is a mirror that exposes our own hearts to us, 
by the working of your Holy Spirit. And it's also a glass that we can look through to see your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would do both of those this morning and conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. As we work through these verses this morning, I think the call for us here is to acknowledge the fact that Jesus is worth your best. Jesus is worth our best. As we work through these verses, we'll see the plot and the preparation. In verses 1 and 2 and 11 to 10, we'll see the plot as being hatched. And then we'll see Jesus being prepared in the section in between. As we come to these verses, uh, we find another one of Mark's sandwiches. Perhaps you thought we were all done talking about Mark's sandwiches. Uh, Perhaps you have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, I've shared before that one of Mark's techniques as he puts a story, a true story that happened, as he puts it before us, is he'll, he'll put it in a sandwich form. There's a part of the story here, there's a part of it here, and then there's a point in the middle. Uh, and those, the way he puts that forward is to signal for us that these stories are connected. These are meant to be understood together, and usually there's something in the middle that is a driving point for us. And we find that here again. We're going to see in our passage... Uh, a kind of treachery that is contrasted with the purest of devotion. At the beginning and the end, we see a plot to kill Jesus, and in the middle, we have an act of love and devotion. We're going to consider that act of devotion in a little bit, but let's focus on the plot first. Now, back in Mark chapter 12, as Jesus is in Jerusalem, he's teaching in the temple, we've seen the kind of confrontation that's taken place. The Herodians and the Pharisees have come and they've asked Jesus about taxes. Should we pay taxes or not? And they're hoping that he'll say, no, we shouldn't pay taxes, because then they can call in the government to apprehend him for being a revolutionary. Or they're hoping that he'll say, well, yes, of course we should pay taxes. And then perhaps he'd fall out of favor with the people that are there. Doesn't work. The Sadducees come and they question him about the resurrection, trying to make him look like a fool. And he stumps them with the scriptures. Uh, There's these attacks that have come on Jesus, and he's responded. Finally, at the end, he turns it back on them, and he says, you answer me a question. How can David say in Psalm 110 that the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool? And they have no answer. Jesus has exposed them publicly, and you get the sense of this growing animosity that's taking place. Jesus goes out. We've seen in Mark 13, he teaches them on the things that are yet to be. And now we're picking up the story again. We're picking it back up. This tension is here. And the religious leaders are just frothing at the mouth, wanting to kill Jesus. And they have failed to get the crowd on their side. And so they know that they can't go out publicly and arrest Jesus. They know that if they go out and they apprehend Jesus in public in the middle of this massive feast where there's four times the amount of people in the city of Jerusalem, they know that a riot is going to be stirred up. So they are in a tough spot. Passover is in two days from this point, and they can't capture Jesus publicly. And they, they want to try to get him when nobody's around, but how do they know where he's going to be when nobody's around? You try to find somebody in a crowd of 250,000 people. Not going to be easy. 
Uh, they are in a bind. I think that's why the text says that they were seeking how to do it. Uh, I don't think this is an easy problem for them to resolve. And worse yet for them, there's a time crunch. Passover's in a couple days. When the feast is done, people are going to leave. They're probably assuming that Jesus is going to be leaving after the feast is done. That he'd go back to Galilee. And then their chance would be gone. If all we had were verses 1 and 2, Jesus would probably have had a great chance of leaving Jerusalem after the feast. But of course, we already know that Jesus will not be leaving Jerusalem, will not be going back to Galilee after this feast. Jesus has been predicting all along now for several chapters in Mark's gospel that he is going to go to Jerusalem, that he is going to be beaten, that he is going to be killed, and then on the third day he's going to rise. He has taught them that he is going to go and give his life as a ransom for many. He's going to rise again from the dead. Jesus didn't enter Jerusalem with any plan to leave it and go back to Galilee. He knew that he was going there to offer his life as a sacrifice for sin. Now, although the leaders, the religious leaders here, they don't understand it, uh, they don't get their mind around this fact, the reality is their evil desire to kill Jesus will be accomplishing God's plan to bring salvation to sinners. Now, they are going to be willfully sinning and fully accountable to judgment for that, but they are unwittingly fulfilling God's plan of salvation. But as of verse 2, they don't know how they're going to carry out their plan. Uh, And that is where Judah steps in. The sincerity of this woman's devotion in verses 3 to 9 is contrasted starkly with Judas's insincerity. Who knows? It's possible that even this act was the final straw for Judas in betraying Jesus. We don't know. We don't know that for certain. Uh, But we do know in verses 10 and 11 that Judas goes out. He goes to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. Mark here notes that he is one of the twelve. Judas is one of the twelve. He's one of the apostles. Now, it's easy for us, for this reality, to become old and familiar. Uh, But this is a betrayal that exceeds any act of treachery and treason in human history. Judas was numbered among the apostles. Among all of those who followed Jesus, Jesus had selected Judas to be one of the twelve who were closest to him. Uh, Judas has gone out. Remember, Jesus sends the apostles out to go two by two, to, to heal, to preach, to cast out demons. And Judas has been there for that. Uh, there's nothing in the gospel that indicates that his experience was any different. Perhaps he was healing as well by the power of the Spirit, certainly not his own. Uh, perhaps these miracles were taking place through his, his work as well. We're not told that his experience was any different, any different than the others. Uh, he has heard Jesus teach and preach for three years now. He has had two miraculous meals with Jesus. If you remember when Jesus heals the, or excuse me, uh, when he feeds the 5,000 and he feeds the 4,000, Judas is there for that. He's eating uh, of this miracle. He has gotten the inside scoop on the parables. Jesus tells the parables out loud and people don't get it and he's among those who get to hear the interpretation of the parables. He's been there to see Jesus heal the sick. He has heard and seen Jesus raise people from the dead. He's been in a boat that was about to sink, and Jesus speaks 
a word and it stops. Judas has been there for all of this. He's been taught by Jesus and served by him. He's been loved by Jesus. And Judas is turning to betray Jesus. It's a heavy reality. I think that the rest of the disciples must have assumed that the safest place for Jesus to be was among his 12 apostles. I bet they thought that was the safest place in the world for him. John 6, 70 says, however, that one of them was a devil. The gospel writers so often refer to the fact that Jesus betrayed Jesus, and they share about his hypocrisy. Now, we see it coming because they tell us all along. But I don't think the 11 had any idea that Judas was about to do this. I don't think they had so much as a whiff of it. Brothers and sisters, we want to keep watch on our hearts. We must be sure that we love the Lord Jesus Christ from the heart, that our devotion to Jesus is true. On the outside, Judas, I think he looked just like the other 11. Perhaps he was a very pious man, in fact. And John's Gospel, it's interesting, in chapter 13, verse 29, when Jesus says to him those famous words, what you must do, do quickly. The other, and he goes out, and the other apostles, they hear that, they think Jesus must have been telling him to go out and buy food for the Passover. Jesus must have been telling him to go out and give to the poor. The other disciples held Judas in a high regard. In fact, he was the one who kept the money bag. Uh, He was very trusted. I bet Judas looked just like all the others on the outside, and I bet he said all the right things. I don't say this and mean this to provoke uh, anxiety among us with a sensitive conscience by saying this, I do want to encourage us to make sure that our devotion to Christ is genuine. From Judas's external appearance, only the Son of God knew that he was false. But I bet Judas knew that he was at odds with Jesus. I bet he knew that his heart was set against him, even as he was putting on a good show on the outside. Judas was insincere, and when the time came, he betrayed Jesus. He goes to the chief priests in order to hand Jesus over to them. These, uh, the chief priests are part of the, the Sadducees. The Sadducees populate the priestly class. Uh, these, again, are the people who ridiculed Jesus just days ago. And in secrecy, Judas goes to them. And they are pleased to hear it. I bet they couldn't believe their luck that here they are in a bind, and here is one of the twelve, one of the trusted members of Jesus' apostles who's coming to betray him to them. Their struggle has been resolved, and they promise Judas money if he can make it happen. So a plot is devised to arrest Jesus. Jesus says in verse 21, we'll get there later, he says that it would be better as if this it'd be better if this man had never been born. It's a, it's a very sad story here. There's a radical hypocrisy on display in Judas. And Mark, seeing this, puts these stories together. He, he sandwiches these two together. The radical insincerity of Judas is contrasted with the radical devotion of this woman. I want to turn now, consider verses 3 to 9, and see the preparation. In verse 3, we find Jesus reclining at a table in the house of Simon the leper. In that culture in that day, when you would eat a meal, uh, people, they didn't have you know big tall tables that we pull chairs under. 
uh, they had a low table, and you would recline back at it. Your feet would go away from the table, and you'd basically be lounging while you eat. You know, there's no arguing about the couch afterwards, who's going to sit on it, because you're all basically sitting, reclined, while you eat. Uh, It was very popular all throughout the Mediterranean area. That's the way you would eat. Uh, And there they are. They're eating at the house of Simon the leper, and they're in Bethany. Uh, Bethany is the... Uh, It's just a little to the east of Jerusalem. It's the place where uh, Jesus would retire after a day in Jerusalem. He'd go out to Bethany just outside of town, and he would be there with his disciples. And that's where we find him in the middle of eating. Again, he's in the house of Simon the leper. Uh, Some have argued that Simon must have been a healed leper, somebody who Jesus had healed, because otherwise he wouldn't be allowed to be in town. Uh, And I think they're right. And that's the location, and that's what's going on here. Uh, Verse 3 tells us that a woman comes in with an alabaster flask, uh, which is full of pure nard. It's very costly. The perfume nard is made, was at that time made in India, uh, so it was exported. It was very expensive. And this whole thing is really expensive. The jar itself, we're told, is made out of alabaster. Uh, That was a stone that was quarried out of Egypt at the time. So even the container isn't cheap. Uh, and later we see that the ointment was, itself was worth 300 denarii. If you'll remember, a, denarii, a denarius is worth a day's wage. It would be the typical wage that a worker would get for working a whole day. So you think 300 denarii means 300 days of labor. And for the Jew, you had to take the Sabbath off. So there's... 52 days out of it, you factor in holy days. This is basically a year's worth of wage. This woman is coming with tens of thousands of dollars of value in her hands, and she is coming up now at this feast, at this meal, and she breaks this jar on purpose. Why does she do this? Why spend all of this money? She puts this extremely expensive perfume on Jesus' head. John mentions that the fragrance of this perfume filled the whole house. And she pours all of this value onto Jesus. Now this surely springs from a heart of love and devotion and admiration and honor towards Jesus. You don't see this kind of sacrifice for somebody that somebody cares half-heartedly for. You don't see this kind of expense paid for somebody who, oh, they might have had something interesting to say. An act of honor of this magnitude is reserved only for the best. This woman must have truly cherished Jesus. And she found him to be worth the highest cost. I think she is certainly put forward here as an example for us of the love and devotion that we ought to have for our Savior. Now, the fact that she's unnamed here in Matthew's gospel points to the fact that she is being held up before us as an example. Now, John, uh, in his gospel, he's going to mention that this is Mary. This is Mary, the sister of Martha, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who's been raised from the dead. We find John often tells us people's names. Uh, I was joking with Neil about the fact that uh, all the gospel writers, he was telling me, leave out the fact that the disciple who cut off the ear of the servant was Peter. Mark says one of, or Matthew and Mark say one of the the twelve. 
Luke says the same. You get to John's gospel, and he's like, it was Peter. <laughs> uh, he tells us even that Malchus is the name of the guy whose ear got cut off. I mean, he's telling us names here. He tells us that Mary was the one here. But the fact that she's unnamed in these other gospel accounts, I think, is pointing to the fact that it, it is a contrast. It's being put forward here uh, as almost like a proverb for us, that uh, she is being contrasted with Judas. The sincerity of what she has done is put before us. Uh, Jesus says that what she has done is a beautiful thing, and it's going to be remembered wherever this gospel is preached. And this account is shared in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel. It's shared in John's gospel. And the fact that by the Holy Spirit it's recorded ensures the very thing that Jesus says. I mean, here we are this morning, 2,000 years later, talking about this and considering this. Uh, Jesus' word proved true. Her sacrificial act of devotion was beautiful in the eyes of Jesus. This is a compliment that we don't often see Jesus pay. Uh, but it wasn't beautiful in everybody's opinion, right? You read this story? Uh, Mark goes on to say that after she's done this, uh, some of those who were present there were indignant. They were angry. They were breathing under their breath. What a waste! What was an act of love and devotion by this woman was an act of foolishness and waste in the eyes of man. Now, there is supposedly a, a pious reason for it. They say, well, you know, it could have been sold and, and given to the poor. Uh, Mark says simply that some of those who were around said that. Uh, Matthew goes farther, and he shares that, in fact, it was some of the disciples who were saying that. And John, again, not worried to share names, uh, he says that it was Judas who said that. Uh, in fact, Judas is the one who says it first, most likely, and John tells us that it wasn't because Judas cared about the poor. Uh, instead, he was the one with the money bag and he was pilfering from it. I think Judas speaks at first and then the other disciples, taking his comment in good faith, follow along in the critique. But the criticism completely misses the point. Jesus says that they always have the poor with them and they can do good to them whenever they want. Now, I don't believe Jesus is encouraging his followers to be callous to the poor, but rather, I think he's pointing to the fact that this is a unique moment. Something unique is taking place at this time. I think Jesus is saying here, yes, the poor have needs and you should care for them, but this is a moment worthy of such extravagance. This woman is showing a sincere love for Jesus through her extravagant offering that she's making. I think it's unbeknownst to her. I think out of her love for Jesus, she's doing this. But I don't think she understands all of what she's doing. We see that in the Gospels often. People don't always know fully what they're doing. But in God's providence, Jesus says here that she is preparing him for his burial. In that day, uh, it was common to spend a lot of money on funerals. Uh, we Americans are frugal and we want to save wherever we can and so we're, we're moving towards saving as much as we can in funerals, but that's not the way it was back then. People paid a lot of money when somebody passed away. People went to extravagant ends to show that they cared. Uh, this extremely expensive act is a preparation 
for Jesus' burial. It's, it's fitting in that regard. Within a very short amount of time, Jesus was going to be betrayed. He's going to be tried unfairly. He'd be beaten, be crucified, and then he was going to be buried. And this is the preparation for that. So it's a fitting extravagance that's being carried out for Jesus for what lays ahead of him. Uh, there was no more important death in the history of this world than the one that was about to take place. Uh, if ever there was a time to pull out all the stops, this was the time. The Lord of the universe was about to give his life as a ransom for sinners. So here's the extravagance for it. This woman, out of her love, unwittingly takes part in such an important moment in the ministry of Jesus. Out of her heart of love flowed a momentous act of service to our Lord. And Jesus was worth it. Jesus was worth everything to her. And that's shown in this extravagant act. I think it's fair for us to ask ourselves, what is Jesus worth to us? What is Jesus worth to you? Do you hold him in this kind of a regard? Think about her offering. Once she broke that jar, there was no going back. You're not going to scrape that back into the jar. Now, some of you, I know, have sacrificed some pretty special things for the Lord. Maybe it's not costly perfume, but maybe following Jesus has costed you some relationships that were dear to you. Perhaps you've had to sacrifice your reputation at work to be known as a follower of Jesus. Maybe your faithfulness to Christ has meant that your household income is less than it would have been otherwise, maybe less than what your peers are receiving. Uh, Perhaps you have sacrificed something precious to Christ for his sake, uh, and then others have gone so far as to even ridicule you for it. Have you experienced that? Your faithfulness to Christ bringing reproach on you? This woman experienced it here. You may have sacrificed a lot for Christ, but I want to encourage you that he is worth it. He is worth everything that you could ever give for him. Your offering for him is beautiful in his eyes. And you may not have your story recorded in the Bible like this woman, but God will remember it nonetheless. There isn't a single thing that he forgets. Uh, Jesus will say elsewhere that if somebody so much as gives a cup of cold water to somebody in my name, Because he belongs to me, he will by no means lose his reward. God doesn't forget anything. God remembers every single thing that you have done for him. It is beautiful in his eyes. Perhaps on the other hand this morning, there is something that you sense that the Lord is calling you to lay down for him. There's not just things you've given up in the past for him, but maybe there are things yet ahead. I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, Perhaps there's something that's precious in your eyes that, on the other hand, might not be precious in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, If there is any sin in your life that you are secretly cherishing, be done with it. Smash it at the feet of Jesus. Throw down any idols in your heart that divides your devotion to Christ. The greatest thing that you can give to the Lord is your heart. I want to encourage you this morning to love the Lord. Offer him your best. Your heart might be stained with sin. You might be struggling to feel the way towards God that you know you should. 
Maybe you hear this story and you think that my heart couldn't be farther from this woman than Mercury is from Pluto. If that's the case for you this morning, I want to ask you to confess that to the Lord in your heart. Go to Him. Share that with Him. Ask Him to help you love Him with this kind of love. Judas may have known that he was being two-faced, but I don't think he hated it. There's a contrast there. Judas was insincere in his external profession, but that didn't bother him at all. Uh, He was simply doing what his heart was driving him on to do. This morning, if you know your heart isn't there, that's a good thing, actually. It's a good thing to know that it isn't where it should be. Go to the Lord. He will help you. Seek the Lord afresh. Ask him to give you this kind of heart. We've seen the contrast then now. Uh, Solomon put so many contrasts before us in the Proverbs. And Mark has put before us this morning a contrast of hearts. And then a contrast of deeds that flow out of those hearts. And you know which one he is commending. With God's grace we can seek the Lord and give to him what he is worthy of. And he is worthy of of our best. I want to invite the men to prepare for communion. I want to invite Michelle to come and play. Uh, Let's go to